This is where kindness lives. Nextdoor's global podcast, your one-stop shop for all things kind. Here's your host, Jenny Sager. My guest today is adventurer, avalanche rescuer, and best-selling author of Go Find, My Journey to Find the Lost and Myself. Between hunting for gold in Latin America and training special ops and Navy SEALs, Susan Purvis says she lost her way. And so began her incredible journey through what she calls lostness. But it was a Labrador pup that helped Susan get back on track, and now she's helping others do the same. Susan, it is so great to have you here today. You're joining us from Hawaii. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. Can you first tell us what kindness means to you? What is kindness? What is kindness? Kindness is giving and receiving love with no expectation. So I love to walk through this world and give kindness either through a compliment, a touch, monetary rewards, and expect nothing in return. Such a great definition. Is there somebody in your life that you feel like has really done that for you? Really, it's everywhere. I'm in Hawaii, and we're staying next to um, a beautiful woman. And almost every day, there's some sort of kindness. She brings us over a coconut, and they show us how to open the coconut so we can drink the, the water and crack open the meat. So really, I like to say gifts from the sea, whether you're in the sea or on land, kindness is everywhere as long as you're open to it. And sometimes it's those little things that make such a big impact, isn't it? Like that simple act of your neighbor bringing you a coconut and having that experience with you of cracking it, opening and drinking it actually is a really beautiful thing when you think about it. But it's, you know, it's a a small act of kindness that's really driving that impact. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is she just came over, she knocked on the door and she said, Sue, I ordered your book. Will you sign it? And I'm like, oh my God, that was beautiful too. You know, and um, so there's beautiful people everywhere. Thankfully, that is true. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book and your and your amazing career and your path. Because at one point in your life, you say that you are actually feeling a bit lost and you called it lostness. Can you explain that and talk about what you were going through at the time and what that term means? It took me a while to write my book, but the beautiful thing about living in a small town is I was surrounded by a bunch of writers. We had a strong writing community. They'd been around for 20 years. And when I started writing about lostness, my friend said, wait a minute, lostness, you can't use that word. And I'm like, yes, I can. And I told her what it is. You know, I was lost, as lost as anybody I ever found as being the expert in a search and rescue career with my canine. And what I discovered in the process of writing my book over eight years is that not only can people get lost on the trail or in the mountains, but people can get lost in a relationship, in their career, in their business, in their health. I mean, and I want to say the health is a big one for me. And people have no idea they're lost. You know, it's not like being outside, you know, where you're lost in the woods and you have to call for help. And so I'm very curious about that area now. And I've kind of made it a lifelong passion to um, become the lost expert. So how do you, well, let's take apart both of those things. How do you know if you're feeling lost? What are some signs you can look out for? And then what are some practical tips for dealing with it and kind of breaking that cycle? 
Yeah. How do you know you're lost? I start listening to people and, you know, they start to complain or they start to repeat the bad habits or the behavior or the situation they're in. And it's like this broken record. We all know what broken records are like. And I, I want to stop them because even their story, it's the same story, right? And so they're in this do loop and, you know, they know something's wrong, kind of, but they can't find their way out. So they're in a hole. And, you know, my job, I feel like I listen, but then I start digging them out of the hole. You know, what are some of the, you know, first they have to recognize they're lost. Um, So I, I often stop them because it's that broken record and then say, okay, are you willing, you know, to acknowledge that you're lost and then let's come up with a plan to get you out, mm-hmm. get unstuck, get unlost. And what does that look like? Like, how do you get unstuck? At least in the beginning, I know obviously everyone's situation is different, but whether it's, you know, being kind of feeling stuck at work or in a relationship or, you know, something like where you're living, like how do you kind of break that cycle? Well, that is a tough one because sometimes we don't have choices. Like you go to work every day and you're like, oh, that person, you know, I just can't stand working for my boss anymore. And then you're like, well, then I just say, well, why don't you quit? Move on. You know, then people are like, well, that's not an option. And I'm like, well, maybe it is. And so why are we stuck with that position? Why do we have to be stuck in that job? Maybe the best thing you could do is just get out of the gerbil wheel and move on. And it's frightening. I think so. It comes back to fear. Fear prevents us from moving out of our comfort zone or having to face the unknown. And we're, you know, we're creatures of habit. We like, like it easier and to stop an action, admit something, say, yeah, you know what? I'm not this isn't my right career. I've got to go do this, live my dream, the one I've been talking about. And you obviously made that choice. And I'm going to guess you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of fear because you have been doing a job and have been on a career path that is very dangerous to the average person and you're risking a lot of things. So can you tell us how you got started on that journey and how you ended up in ski patrol and avalanche, avalanche rescue? Well, I was in a job. I got a degree in geology, and I went into gold exploration. In the mid-'80s, that was pretty hot. Um, And my husband at the time and I decided to manage a gold exploration project in the Dominican Republic. So I was, you know, talk about fear. I lived in fear down there, just bashing through the woods, living in a Spanish-speaking country with the campesinos. It was the highway between Puerto Rico and Haiti, and there was drug smuggling and people smuggling. We lived right on the edge of it, and we were targeted as the rich Americans looking for gold. I'm like, I'm going to get kidnapped. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I'm getting bit by bugs in the jungle. And I'm like, what am I doing? In the meantime, all of my friends are, like, living their dream, and I'm doing it for money. And, you know, I, I remember screaming at the moon one night. I'm like, I don't care about money, and I don't care about looking for gold. And I'm like. God, you know, give me a sign, something. And you're like, I got to get out of here. And so since we could live anywhere, you know, it was a beautiful thing about the job is if they wanted someone to work down there, they had to accommodate us. We could live anywhere. And I chose the last great Colorado ski town, which was in Crested Butte, Colorado, at 9,500 feet. 
So I had one foot in the mud in the Dominican Republic and one foot in the snow. And I came alive. And I love using that word. It's like, you know, to your audience, what makes you come alive? And that's where the sweet spot is. And that's what we should be doing. And I thought, I come alive when I'm on my skis. And I, in the snow, and it's cold, and it's challenging. And, you know, really becoming, you know, one of the mountains. And so I said, well, heck. I'm a good skier. I'll try out for ski patrol. It's like the gnarliest ski patrol job in America. (laughs) And I'm like, I was five foot four, 110 pounds wearing white pants from the Caribbean. And I'm like, I'm here to get on ski patrol. Okay. And so they're like, all right, little lady, you know, this was uh, in the mid nineties. When I was in ski patrol school, I learned about an avalanche that had crashed down across the street and buried three toddlers. Can you imagine you're on ski vacation in Colorado and your kids are out playing for, um, in the snow waiting for the shuttle bus to bring them back to Texas and at 9 a.m. there's bluebird day and a wall of snow comes down and buries your kids. Oh my gosh. They're, like, yeah. they're gone like a tsunami. Crazy. And everybody rallied, you know, people grabbed pool hooks and you know, hockey sticks, whatever they had to start probing the snow. Well, I was hearing the story from ski patrollers, and then they said, well, we had a trained avalanche dog, so we brought him over to the scene. And I'm like, oh, wow. It's like the first time I'd heard about avalanche dogs. And I'm like, what the dog do? Did the dog find him? And the guy's like, nope, he didn't find him. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's trained. Isn't that the dog's only job? And I kept saying, wait. You know, this story's not over yet. How come that dog didn't find the humans? And he, his answer he gave me wasn't good enough. And I thought, hmm, what if I got a dog and trained, trained it to save lives? And in that moment, I vowed to never leave anyone behind. Oh, my gosh. It was also the same year. It was also the same year I said to my husband, till death do us part, going through life keeping a promise. And then there's some promises you just can't keep. But I'll tell you right now, I kept the, uh, the dog promise. <laughs> we were, we never left anyone behind and we were, you know, we really rose to the top of our game and we were the team that law enforcement calls for, you know, water, wilderness, avalanche and homicides. You've trained everyone from Sherpas to special ops to kind of the best of the best when it comes into going into, you know, dangerous places and hunting for the bad guys. And how do you do that? Like, what do, where do you start? Where do you begin? And what do you see in those people? Because, you know, if you think about, say, special ops as an example, you kind of picture these, like, really buff, badass people that you'd think they wouldn't struggle in this area. But do you see them actually get there and, and it's a challenge? Well, it's funny because my... Um my sweetie comes to my classes with me and he's like in awe of me, not during the, you know, when I'm with them in day, but when I show up to teach, he's like, Sue, you have the attention of 20, you know, six foot two, 250 pound gorillas that um, do this for a living. And they are all looking at you and you have their full attention. And he's like, I'm in awe at how you do that. Where kindness lives. We'll be back in a moment. 
Hey, you know what's really great for earning some extra cash? Nextdoor's for sale and free. Basically, it's where you go on and you can sell things that you have lying around the house. You can even swap them with neighbors, like household appliances, gardening items, pet supplies, furniture. You can really put anything on there. It's really simple. Just look around your house, see what you're not using anymore, and I bet somebody is going to want it in the neighborhood. And guess what? It also keeps waste out of the landfill and helps the environment, which is really, really awesome. And it's so easy to use. Just download the free Nextdoor app or go to nextdoor.com and start turning that trash into treasure right now. You're somebody who obviously loves to give back. I mean, you've been recognized at the congressional level as well. Where did that shift in your life and why is that important to you? I would say the shift came from that moment in the Dominican Republic. It's like, I don't really care about money. You know, but at some point we all have to go make money if we want to, you know, follow our dreams because it costs money to be able to do all this stuff. And then I'm like, well, I got enough right now. So let me follow a passion. And then my passion, which was, you know, starting to to teach and to learn, became my profession. And I got paid for it. And then my profession became my philanthropy because then I started going to Nepal and, like you're saying, training the Sherpas. Like, these guys don't even, you know, might not have, you know, an eighth grade education. They can barely speak English. But, you know, they need to be the leaders when they climb Mount Everest. They need to know how their body works. They know how to t- need to take care of themselves before they can take care of anybody else. And so just little old me, I get to give power back to the people. And that is a huge honor. And are there things that, regardless of whether you're a Sherpa or you're a business leader, do you, when you think about doing that, like giving that power back and teaching them those qualities of being a leader and kind of fighting through those challenging situations, is there a common thread that you see there? Like, are there certain things that you feel like relate to whatever you're doing? That's a great question. You know, what is that common thing? And I might even bring it back to you. Um, I think it's the eagerness to learn. And, you know, maybe we're all inherent leaders. So, and I talk about this in the book. We can't always be leading. Sometimes we have to be followers. So, you know, finding that balance. Because what I learned with my dog is I, when I was training my dog, I was pushing my agenda on her. And my dog, like, would put up her, if she had a middle finger, she'd stick it up at me and say, I don't think so, lady. Uh, I'm not going to do what you say. And so there's this big challenge of alpha and beta. So I think providing space, and this is what we do in our courses, is we teach them, they're followers, and then towards the end of the courses, they become leaders. So there's all these little baby steps, and they might be really good at you know navigating, or someone might be very good at um, breaking trail. And so eventually by the end of the course they can put all the little pieces together the the planning right and the post follow-up you can't learn it all at once but you start to put these building blocks together and that's the start of a, a great leader just like how I learned it and you mentioned before that you're often teaching you know a lot of kind of males and I'm assuming that when you started out it was mostly a male dominated industry as well how did you navigate through that I think I learned to navigate through that with my mama. I I had a mama bear. She never had a college education, but man, you know, don't put her in a box. Don't put her in the corner because she is going to fight back. (laughs) So, you know, and I'm pretty nice, but when people say, 
no, I don't think so. Not you. Oh, I'm like, ah, you know, my hackles come up and I'm like, I'll show you. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of that. I'll show you. Watch out. And, you know, then I find other ways. I can't bulldoze through them. So I find ways to go around them. And I, you know what I learned in my whole search and rescue career is I was probably, you know, blocked against the little guys. And I learned quickly, ooh, I got to go to the top. Because mm-hmm. if I can demonstrate to the leaders, like the sheriff, I, I don't have to go through the little guys. So um, I pass that on to people. Go right to the top. Yeah, good advice. Did you have moments, and is there one specifically that stands out, even if it was just a physical challenge where you just thought, oh, my God, I can't do this. Like, this is too hard. Maybe I should be trying something else. Oh, like every, probably moments every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, like you're driving a snowmobile down the ski hill trying to go do a rescue and you roll your snowmobile. (laughs) You're like, oh my God, like I should not be doing this, right? Um, Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, crawling on your hands and knees and crying. And also like the book writing process. I mean, I was a rookie writer and... You know, I said, oh, I could probably write a book in four months. No problem. And, you know, eight years later. So it's the the naivete of it all is kind of an advantage. But once you get into it, you know, anything you do and you want to be good at it, it is a struggle. And so like today we were swimming in the ocean against the current the current's just ripping we're like we're gonna turn around and swim and i'm like whatever we do don't quit don't quit against the current so that's a metaphor for life you know it's easy to quit and if you quit you'll never get to the finish line you're listening to where kindness lives next door's global podcast and our guest today is best-selling author susan purvis who's just an all-around badass i have to say um susan you as we mentioned earlier spent some time with sherpas and in some communities all around the world with people that are risking their lives whether it's you know mount kilimanjaro or mount everest in those areas community obviously plays such a strong piece there. And, and I'm sure you've witnessed that with a lot of the work you've done with the mountain guides and the Sherpas. What did you notice about the communities globally? And did you have any takeaways from that, that you incorporated into your own life? People always ask me like, Oh, where's your favorite place to travel? Cause you know, my fame to claim is, well, I've been to the hottest, the coldest and the highest place, <laughs> Antarctica, Nepal, and, um, Ethiopia. Well, they're my favorite, not so much Antarctica, but my favorite places are the places where you get to live with the villagers. And now, you know, you're, you're a visitor in their world. You get to learn all about their lifestyle. I mean, those moments touch me. And they make me a better human. And they're so giving. They'll give you your, their last potato. They'll work extra hard to get firewood to give you a hot cup of tea you know they're the poorest people on the planet and you go wow those are acts of kindness like I can do better at home you mentioned your Labrador Labrador pup named Tasha earlier where do you start when you're training a dog and my gosh I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear your tips on this one but you know there's that old saying of don't work with kids or animals like where do you start with a dog and how did you find that whole experience in the beginning? 
Oh, well, of course, we all, you know, all of us who've had our puppies, you know, it's our true love, right? At the end of the day, do we really, we probably love our dogs more than we love our spouses. Oops, did I say that? Probably. But um, why? Because it's that unconditional love, expecting nothing. They didn't want anything from us. Well, maybe a belly rub and a food scrap. But, you know, I went into dog training very naive. I'm like, oh, I can train a dog. Can't be that hard. You know, and, you know, if I would have just read the books or hired somebody, um, you know, all I wanted my dog to do is find human scent. So I really started on her tracking with the nose to the ground to find humans. And her disobedience kind of went to the wayside. I, if the, I just assumed if I, you know, called my dog and if she loved me, she'd come. Right. Isn't that what your kids do? Not always. But, oh, <laughs> no. She had... <laughs> My dog had a different agenda. So I had to like step after a year of training, like there, you know, my hand dog handler friends are like, Sue, this dog is unruly. She doesn't listen. You can't, you can't be a dog handler if your dog behaves like that. And I'm like, Oh, don't say that to me. But there's, you know, there's that line again between freedom and wild and letting the animal make decisions. And then that hard discipline. Now, in recreational life, my dog was, you know, rotten, dirty, rotten, stinker, getting in the garbage and, you know, doing anything to get food. But when I put her harness on and told her to go to work, she found everything she went to look for. So tips, I would say teach your dog a very simple thing. It's when you, you know, to, to maintain eye contact and um, you can read about it, but having that eye contact that's unwavering. And you reward them for the eye contact because when you call their name, you want your dog to look you in the eyes and hold that stare and the command follows. I didn't learn that until six years into my dog training um, and my dog career. And I, you know, I wish I would have learned that when, you know, three months in because that eye contact is, you know, the key to success. You know, they should be able to hold an eye stare for a minute and then tell them to sit stay and a perfect example would be you're on a busy road your dog runs across the road and there's a bunch of traffic and they want to come back to you but if I say Tasha she's going to stop and stare at me and then when the cars pass I'll give the command either to come or to stay so that'll save dogs lives Um, look into it people because you know we don't want our dogs to get hit I want to share a neighbor story with you. This week, it's actually from Melbourne, Australia. We share one from anywhere in the world in each episode, but this week, it's actually from Melbourne. And I know that you're someone who's really open to adventure and just new experience every day. So we thought this one was the the perfect story for you. So at the end of last year, 2021, neighbors Claire and Arthur of Knoxville, Victoria in Australia, both received a next door flyer in their mailbox. They both joined Nextdoor, and she she did not actually post on Nextdoor at first, but he did. And she replied and said, hey, I think you look a little bit familiar. Do I know you? Well, it turns out that his children took dance lessons from her a few years ago, and they started chatting online, but they hadn't actually met in person yet. They're both divorced. They didn't know that about each other, and they didn't really want to you know, come off too flirty or anything. And then around Christmas last year, 
Arthur said, oh, I've got to go. I've got to take my kids back to their moms. And Claire then realized, oh, okay, he's single. So on New Year's Day, she asked him if he'd like to come over and hang out in her backyard because it was really hot out and she had a pool. And the distance from his house to hers was actually only three doors down. They lived just three doors apart from each other, which they then realized. He then went to her pool and they've been dating ever since. And what Claire says is, you know, forget all the dating apps. The love of your life could literally be just around the corner. Yes. You know, um, hashtag neighbors, love our neighbors. I I think, uh, well, if I look back at all my neighbors I've ever had, they're all still my very best friend. And I think we love our neighbors sometimes more than our own families. And we can't live without them. That is a, such a beautiful story. And I know a lot of women, well, and some men who are single in their 50s and 60s, and they're searching so hard to find love. And I'm like, I'm going to tell them the story. Oh, my gosh, you should. Well, you know what, Susan? We have had quite a few people. We are not a dating app, but we've had quite a few people find their spouse or partner on next door who turns out it's the person's living like you know, a few minutes away or even like this one, a few doors down. So definitely, you know, this is all about meaningful connections and that's super, super, super meaningful. You know what I want to say, especially when we're like our late forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, it's like, we want to partner and we want them to live two or three houses down. We don't want them living with us, but if they're pretty (laughs) close, that's like the perfect combination. I think you can start something else here. We're going to play what we call the kind carousel with you, where we get to ask you all kinds of questions. Love this. It's one of my favorite things about this podcast because you find out so many great things about everyone that you're talking to. So first question for you, you are very obviously an overachiever who's good at so many different things. What's something you're not good at? Uh, Eating well. Well, I work really hard at it and I sometimes can't control myself and I'll get, I'll overeat and I get so mad at myself. So having more discipline at portion sizes and chewing my food a bit, little bit slower. How about that one? You probably weren't expecting that. I wasn't because you're so fit. I was not expecting that one, but then I have to follow it up with a question of then what kind of things do you like to eat that are like, you know, kind of naughty? Like, are you like a cookie person, a candy person, French fries? What is it? Yeah, probably the French fries because I just found out I was I can't have gluten anymore. So like the cookies are out, and probably like chocolate uh, malted milk balls or chocolate covered oh, almonds. So good. Yeah, you've taught many Labradors over the last few decades. Do you have any pets at home at the moment? No, no pets. I live a pretty simple life. Well, that's probably because you're traveling all the time, which is a good segue to, I'm going to guess I know the answer to this, but what's your favorite place to holiday? What's your favorite vacation spot? Uh, There's no such thing as a vacation. I know nothing about them. I'm here in Hawaii for a month living and writing and getting healthy. And I say I'm resting and digesting. So it's funny. I don't really ever go on holidays. I, you know, like my life is just a continuum. Like, I'm going to go explore the north end of this island and hang out and watch monk seals and the big turtles. So I don't call it a vacation. 
Is there an adventure or somebody in the same space that you're in that you really admire, someone that stands out? Yes, my um, my sweetie John Harrington. I try to emulate him more and more. He teaches me every hour, every day. He's task-oriented. I have ADD. He's super hyper-focused. Um, he's accommodating and kind and so I like to be with him because I get to learn from him all the time. Well, and if anybody listening does not know who Susan's talking about, she is talking about John Harrington, who's a former NASA astronaut and also was a guest on this podcast. So you can listen to that episode as well. And, and such, a, such a great guy. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? And do you want to give a plug to your book or or anything else you're working on at the moment? So go find my journey to find the lost and myself is the memoir I wrote. You can find it, you know, probably at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And um, my website is my name, SusanPurvis.com for coaching and Uh, for writing or in life. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. We're so jealous of your life. I feel like I need to go live, as you said, somewhere else really soon. Um, If you want to start connecting with neighbors where you live anywhere in the world, just head to nextdoor.com or download the free Nextdoor app in the App Store. Thanks again, Susan, and hope to see you in person somewhere in the world. Thank you so much. 